following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today, with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM and Canberra. And that was one of our old favourites by Kev Carmody from Little Things big things grow and that's what we're going to be talking about today with both our guests. First up this morning we're going to be chatting with Michael Pilbro who will be talking to us about all things cooperative, the cooperative model and that's probably one of Scotty's favourite topics I think there (laughs) and why the cooperative model could be the answer to so many of the social challenges we face today. Then later at 10am we'll be chatting live in studio with Kirsten Duncan who is the climate and sustainability campaigner and CBR360 event manager and she's going to be talking to us about the upcoming Circular Economy Symposium which is hosted by Conservation Council ACT and that's going to be held at the Cambry at the ANU so make sure to check back in at 10 o'clock as well to listen to Kirsten but firstly we'd love to welcome uh, Michael to the show thank you for joining us on this very wet Friday morning Michael. Thank you, Zena. Good morning to you and Scotty and all your listeners. Yeah, I live just a little bit down the road from you and it was absolutely torrential rain this morning. How's it doing out at Yes? Oh, yes. I just, it's like it's been nearly every day of this year. Raining, <laughs> <wet>. <laughs> so you got a boat going ready? Just about, mm. yeah. Need that. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> So you've had quite a, an impressive career. I was taking a look at your bio there and I almost didn't know where to start. Um, but you, you seem to be a guy who's been pro- solving problems um, with every role that you've had. Um, so I'm wondering perhaps we could start by talking about what got you to where you are now. Um, so, I mean, I really love the opportunity to talk about co-op. So thank you mm-hmm. and and um, glad that it's something of... Um, uh, a passion um, um, for for you and 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 uh, Scotty in particular. I noticed your email address has the word co-op in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that got me going after a few years. Um, God, I've got to uh, do it now. <laughs> um, I grew up in a really big family, so I've got mum um, and dad had ten kids. Um, um, we grew up with nine nine kids and mum and dad in in the house after one one died very young, but. Um, so maybe maybe uh, growing up in such a big household, <laughs> you just have to be cooperative to, for, for things to happen. You also have to be a bit competitive too to get what you needed. But um, so you know, um, I always like to to give credit to my parents for for you know not just um, focusing on their own family, but but having a bit of an outward outward look. But but at the end of the day, you know, where where I got into co-ops, maybe just to start there, it was actually to solve a problem that was actually quite personal. Um, we're in an area where there were no, um, it was very hard to get a doctor. Um, I had a little kid who needed a doctor. <laughs> I rang seven practices and they said, we're not taking new patients. Um, and so um, talked to my local chemist who was a friend and he saw the same thing and talked to a, a few other people I knew around the community, and we kind of said, oh, well, if we can't find a doctor, let's open our own medical practice. Oh, I love <laughs> the way no you think. what we were doing. <laughs> but that's where it came from, and, 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 and that's where I first got into really active, um, um, actively pursuing the co-op model as, as a really good solution for certain challenges that we face. Um, yeah. So I don't want to make it sound like it was all noble. There was actually something that was important to me and my family we wanted to solve. And uh, we, 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 after some blood, sweat and tears, the co-op model um, was the way we went. Yeah, yeah. So that was the National Health Co-op, eh? That was the National Health Co-op, yeah. So, um, which has a much longer story to it than just that. But, but for, um, we started with one doctor, one clinic, got to two, three, four, up to sort of ten. Um, and um, it sort of travelled a new pathway and I got... I, I, after after 14 years of involvement, um, I I um, moved on and and uh, sort of handed over to, to others and and uh, but yeah you know but the idea that the patients can a, a model that says if you don't have power you know because uh, you're a little individual person and you need a service you can't start one up individually but if you um, collectively organise. With lots of others, with the same who are small, but with the same challenge, you can actually create power. Um, 
and and the idea that patients own their own medical practice um you know was was an idea that for a, a good decade or so served a lot of people really really well yeah yeah i was a member of that it was uh, pretty interesting um, yeah so do you reckon like that was a totally bulk billing model and do you reckon it would have been different if the workers involved were also part of the co-op because they were just employed by the by the customers weren't they uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a. I mean, a worker could have been a member as a consumer, you mm. know, and I just and I think a lot of them were. But um, uh, if I was to learn a lesson from that, is uh, you probably could have made it a joint joint sort of consumer and producer co-op as such, right mm -hmm. from the beginning. I mean, that's an interesting model. Like, so co-ops generally are either either consumer co-ops or producer co-ops. And I've done a bit of work with, um, you know, agricultural um, co-ops, which generally uh, uh, produce their own. A bunch of farmers get together, pool resources, create efficiencies by working together with joint marketing or pooling risk around insurance, etc. Um, but yeah, the idea that you could have um, producers or workers and consumers together, I think it's a really, a really good idea. If I wound the clock back to 2000 and eight, nine, ten, when we were getting the National Health Co-op off the ground, um, I would like to rewind and, and actually add that element to it, to be honest. Yeah, really good question, Scotty. Yeah, right. Yeah, so what what made you choose the co-op model and, and had you had any experience with it before then? Um, so we weren't, to be honest, focused on, oh, let's start a co-op. We were focused on we have a challenge, we want to find a solution and so we were just looking for a good model really fortuitously we discovered at that time um, a small health co-op in Melbourne called the Westgate Health Co-op that had started in the mid 80s and the um, uh, a, a similar situation a bunch of locals had um, had decided to set up a their own um, health service. Uh, they had that. They had sort of free space from a church, and they had some really good, good efficiencies that they were able to get just to get off the ground. So they'd been running for quite a while by then um, with with two clinics. So we got in touch, got in touch through with them, and said, "Hey, can you tell us how you did this?" We brought their CEO up up uh, up to Canberra to meet with the um, the people, community members who were interested, and so that was actually so valuable to have a co-op that had um, traveled the path uh, that we wanted to travel. Um, so, and to be honest, if we hadn't come across Westgate Health Co-op, I think it would have taken us a lot longer to get to get off the ground because they were able to yeah, give us a lot of guidance. Um, but at, at that time, as far as we could see, a genuine patient-owned co-op, they were the only other one. Mm -hmm. They were the only one at that time. And then, and then the National Health Co-op was the second. Yeah, so I'm going to have to just break the flow a little bit. We forgot to mention it's Radiothon Week. <laughs> Two double X is almost a co-op. <laughs> it acts like a co-op. And, and this, this next couple of weeks, we are getting to try and bring in subscribers and, and donations and everything we can. So if you're thinking about it, if you're on the cusp, this week is the week to do it. We're celebrating our 46th year of people-powered radio. That's 46 years delivering a great range of specialist shows and talks, and as volunteers, we do it for the love of it. But we do have bills to pay. A substantial amount of our running costs needs to be raised over the Radiothon to keep us on air. 2XXFM.org.au is the place to go. It's easy to subscribe online. Just click on the Radiothon banner or on the Support Us button. And here at Behind the Lines, we have three books we're giving away today. We have Taming This Great South Land by William J. Lyons, the late, great William Bill Lyons. Um, a really amazing history of the economy of Australia in the light of how it affects the ecology and society. Then we've got Secrets and Lies, the anatomy of an anti-environmental PR campaign from, uh, from New Zealand. That was brought out in 1999, but it's full of stuff that's going on right now very interesting book and we've got confessions of an economic hitman by john perkins who's sort of a this book was a bit of a whistleblower book um from a guy who was doing a lot of undercover economic sabotage in the third world 
So we have those wonderful books, and next next week. And how people? How can they win those books? Well, once the show finishes, give us a bell and on six two four seven double four double o, and the first three people to get through will. Uh, Get one of those books. So the first person can nominate the book that they want and I so reckon, on and yeah, so on. I reckon, yeah, let's okay. do that. Yep. That sounds good. And next week we'll have more books to give away, which will be more on the solutions. And I think some these CDs are, as these well. These are focusing on the problems and, and uh, yeah, next week we'll have solutions. Solutions, fantastic. And that's what we're talking about with Michael Pilrow, our guest today, who is chatting with us about cooperatives. So, Michael, um, was the medical cooperative, the health cooperative, was that your first experience of cooperatives or had, had you actually done some official capacity with cooperatives before? Well, I had, in some of my um, work, I had come across cooperatives, particularly in developing countries. So I had um, had a, a career in, the, in international development for a while. Um, I believe you were a diplomat former, as well. Former Aussie <laughs> that... Um, uh, is now now was merged later with foreign affairs, um, and I remember actually this this interesting moment where I was I was in Vanuatu, um, meeting uh, with different government officials and and uh, community organisations about some development challenges, and you know you'd always see the Department of Cooperatives. <laughs> You know, would be in the room, and there was a department of cooperatives. Oh, that's that's an interesting thing. We don't have mm. such a department of cooperatives um, back here. So uh, that was always a curiosity for me, um, but I, I hadn't really delved into um, into it in in great depth. But but I was very clear that in, um, and I saw that in a number of developing countries that that co-ops that that where people were in poverty banding together to work together in whether as a a food-related co-op or um, um, some other collective action to um, to run businesses uh, was a common, a much more common thing, and much more visible in developing countries than I had seen in Australia at that stage. So yeah, so I guess in an official capacity, I'd seen it a bit, but um, it didn't. Rubber didn't hit the road for me until you know I decided to be involved in setting one up. Mm. And were there any uh, organisations available at the time who could help you do that, or did you have to struggle through on your own? Look, at that time, um, there was there wasn't that we were aware of, apart from this um, Westgate Health Co-op in Melbourne. There was a group called um, I think it was called Social Business Australia that was sort of um, we did make some connection with, and that then turned um, subsequent to the opening of the National Health Co-op. That, um, that, that that turned into an organisation called the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, which is now a great resource. So it's like the umbrella group now. So it didn't exist back then, but I think around 20, maybe around 2010, 2011, uh, the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals was formed. And they are an amazing um, group for advocacy for co-ops, for uh, resources, training, uh, and so forth. And so, you know, there's really big co-ops that are members of that, you know, billion-dollar businesses um, um, down to down to smaller co-ops. So now, anyone starting a co-op now, there's an amazing um, uh, set of support um, that's available. And more recently, I've been involved in setting up the um, uh, a sporting co-op, uh, which is which is. Still got a bit of a way to go, but uh, the Central Coast Mariners Supporter um, Trust. Yeah, yeah, we're going to have, to have a talk about that a bit later. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so so in doing that now, if someone's listening and they want to set up a co-op for, for the the Mariners Supporter Trust, we, you know, there's actually a co-op builder, um, the Business Council of Co-ops and Mutuals has a kind of a co-op builder um, um, template um, with you know model constitutions and. A guidance to take you through all the steps to set up a co-op. So, so that's just absolutely brilliant. Now, that wasn't in existence when we were going, so we were in the dark a bit. Fortunately, had the the group in Melbourne helping us. Yeah, and I guess you've also got the co-op federation down in Sydney too. Now, which is uh, pretty good at helping people set up as well. So, yeah, spoiled for yeah. choice. That, that's right. So we, we should be seeing co-ops just. Popping up everywhere. Well, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Huh? I think the next the next prime minister has to be somebody who's well versed in co-ops because I think that's a huge solution to a lot of our current problems. I look, I I agree, and I I I mean the really interesting thing with co-ops politically is that they appeal to 
they, they kind of have a constituency on all sides of politics. You know, mm. from the um, uh, the National Party, you know, the very ingrained in regional and rural Australia uh, are um, a lot of agricultural co-ops. And so, you know, National Party, you know, gets it. Um, uh, you know, the, the from the Liberal Party perspective, it's it's like it should be like, you know, this is this is um, sort of self-help and um, and proactive community effort, not looking to the government for all the answers. Um, you know, the, from a Labor perspective, it's collective action. You know, it's actually not that much different to the collective action of unions, where someone on their own wouldn't have power, but but acting together, you have power. So I think co-op should be part of the story. And that's it. Um, Don't I fight have, the boss. Replace the boss. Love, <laughs> who love the community aspect of it. So sorry, Scotty. I said, don't fight the boss, replace the boss. We'll replace the boss with bosses. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, why do you think that this model hasn't been adopted more widely? Because it, it really does sound like it has a lot of solutions to address so many different areas. Look, it's a, it's an app, at one level, it's a real mystery to me. I mean, there's this great statistics that um, the Business Council of Co-ops and Mutuals often puts out that, um, in a survey a few years ago, um, at a time when when membership numbers showed that about Australian about eighty percent of Australians were members of a co-op, um, they um, surveyed um, surveyed people about whether they could name a co-op or whether they were a member of a co-op. So remembering that eighty percent at the time were actual members of a co-op, only thirty percent could name. Um, a co-op, and only 20% believe that they are a member of a co-op. Wow. Uh, staggering statistics. So there's, a, there's actually been a, a, um, an awareness challenge um, uh, that people don't realise. And, I mean, the co-ops, the 80%, a lot of them are a member of, uh, would be a big car, you know, like your, your big RAC, you know, NRMA, RACB, mm -hmm. RACQ, um, actually are under the... the the road service aspects um, are still um, run as as a co-op. Um, the insurance bits and other bits have, were all demutualised some years ago. But so oh, yeah. so maybe people don't realise that okay, being a member of an NR, of the NRMA actually means I am a member of a co-op. So, um, but yeah, there, there's a there's a there is a sort of general visibility challenge. But also, you know, even within government and within education, they're not. Um, particularly visible. So there's separate legislation for the co-ops in each state and territory and now a national cooperatives law. But, um, you know, within state or federal governments, there's not like, there's not like in the Pacific, <laughs> there's not a department of cooperatives. Um, it's, it's, there's usually some small part of bureaucracies that, that, that would deal with the, um, I guess, the regulation side of it, um, but, but not necessarily um, a, as much visibility as there would be over companies or associations, the other two main uh, structures. Yeah, um, in the ACT, but, we've got just a small proportion of a job of someone who's really busy with a whole lot of other stuff is the registrar, and that's that's all yeah, we've got exactly. here. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And and within um, within uh, you know accounting and law degrees, for example. Up until recently, um, and up until some serious advocacy by the Business Council of Co-ops, um, co-ops weren't ne even necessarily mentioned in the courses. Where, yet, in fact, there's these pieces of legislation that, that guide them. So there has been a lot of work to get that into university courses so students coming through in a range of disciplines are, are hearing more about co-ops, um, which is really odd that that had to, had to happen because, you know, there's legislation <laughs> for them. So you kind of think it's really important that it should be it should be covered. So um, great credit to um, Melina Morrison, who's the chief executive of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. She's really got the word out um, about co-ops, but yeah, there's a long way to go. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it was interesting, you were mentioning before about demutualisation. Uh, could you explain that a bit for us? Because um, it seems to be the bane of the big cooperative anyway. And, and after that, what's the role of co-ops not spruiking their cooperativeness in leading towards demutualisation? 
Yeah, look, um, demetrialization is is one of the saddest, saddest um, um, things for me. Where you know, essentially, where um, the members of a co-op or a or a, a mutual, um, and I won't. Okay, there's some slight distinctions between co-ops and mutuals, but essentially they're the same. You know, member-owned businesses um, where the members decide to cease being a co-op and 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 turn their their collectively owned entity into into a private um or or um you know shareholder um owned entity so it's um yeah it's something that's you know happened we will have seen it with and a lot of people would have obviously been through this when the nrma insurance um demutualized went from being sort of collectively owned and sold off and people got shares and it all happened, you know, very efficiently from the corporate end. Um, I think AMP um, and some of the other big financial services entities um, like that um, um, have done that. So, yeah, it's effectively where where the members have to vote um, because the one thing with the co-ops is that they are democratic, um, but if the members do vote to demutualise, they turn in a co-op into, a, into kind of a normal commercial entity. Yeah, and I guess that moves it from existing to serve the members to existing to serve private profit, which is quite different. That's right. That's right. Uh, so it is it is a sad thing, but I guess I wouldn't say that, you know, one thing I would stress is that running a co-op is really hard um, and the requirements for good governance, for good management, you know, that just doesn't happen magically, as mm-hmm. you would know in a co-op. And so, um, and it's generally a lot of burden on people who are doing it voluntarily or, or, or you know, um, for possibly less money than might be available elsewhere. So it is a, there is a lot of burden to, to a co-op. They have to run to the highest standards of governance like, like uh, uh, you know, a, a company under the Corporations Act. A lot of the Corporations Act financial requirements apply to co-ops. So um, it's not... It is something, you know, I've been on the footy club committee and the PNC, which are associations, you know, COLP is a much, there's a whole lot more um, regulatory and compliance and governance burden. So I guess don't, don't under, we shouldn't underestimate how hard that is. And, um, but, you know, demutualization should not be the first answer. Um, So so what was, what do you reckon the role of, 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 mutuals and co-ops not sort of identifying as a co-op to their own members. It's interesting. I mean, I guess you could look at it over time because a lot of these are quite old by the time they demutualise and perhaps the, the first generation knows all about it, but then the next generation knows a bit. But the third generation, if the co-op isn't telling them why they're there, they might not even know that it's a co-op or what yeah. a co-op is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a really good Point. And I must admit, for those big co-ops that I'm I'm a member of, I, you don't sort of see like I don't I don't see from the NRMA and the communication I get. Hey, it's so wonderful you're a member of our co-op. It's more very service focused. Hmm. Um, so, and that that's actually a point you know I'll, I'll I'll take up because you know those big entities sit on the very involved in the the umbrella group, the business council of cooperatives and mutuals. But um, I. Yeah, they, I mean, I suspect there's quite a quite a simple sort of communications fix. I love telling people if they're a member of one of these because, oh, so you own a road service organisation or <laughs> you own, um, you know, why I love the football one and having talked from people from the UK who have been involved in some border co-ops there. So you're actually a football club owner, aren't you? You know, and just reinforcing that message or with, our, with the, the health co-op, um, when it was going as a co-op was like, so you own your own medical practice. Yeah. And I just think reinforcing that message um, is, is uh, what I try and do, obviously haven't achieved it with getting the 80% to realize they're a member of a co-op. But I, I think that's a simple message. That means you are not powerless. Someone else over there doesn't own it. You actually own it. Take, take charge. Would you think that's a deliberate ploy once it demutualizes to not let people know that they did have more power and involvement ability? Oh, I think the ones who demutualise, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely, um, because uh, uh, you know the, the members might otherwise rise up. 
Because I've been following a situation, I was living in Canada for quite a long time, and I was following a situation with one of uh, Vancouver's oldest co-ops there, and it's called MEC, it's a Mountain Equipment Co-op, and it started mm. in the 1970s, predominantly as an outdoor equipment supplier for people that wanted to go hiking and camping and that sort of thing. And it's become huge, and it's a huge profit uh, focused um, retail business now and they did some very questionable things about four or five years ago like they sold the building that they were operating out of without consulting the members um, they they changed a lot of their structure uh, I'm not even sure today if this if they have um, uh, demutualized or not I but think they have, yeah. yeah have they so but it was again without a lot of discussion with the members and that came to a shock to a lot of people what's the accountability for something like that to your members yeah, I mean, and I think that's the 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 real challenge for a co-op is to stay really connected to your members. I mean, the members own it, but I think what I've seen, and often from afar, um, particularly in the UK, where some of the big co-ops have wanted to go down the demutualization front, they've kind of lost that connection. You know, when a co-op starts, the members are kind of the users of the service. They're also helping run it. It's all very clear. And then, you know, one day it's a multi-billion dollar co-op and it starts to get a more corporate structure and the members um you know feel far removed from the management and possibly in some of those really big ones the management's quite happy with that because mm. they you know members you know I've I've had you know I've seen in these sorts of organizations where it's like oh well, the members are a bit of a nuisance hang on a sec mm. no the members are your bosses yeah. <laughs> well isn't that interesting that sort of switch in mindset from you know the co-owners of a business or a structure to um, now you're just the peons. We're actually in control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's the absolute it's the absolute um, challenge. And I think when you, if you're starting a new co-op, you know that just just need to be so vigilant at the beginning that your structures are set up such that that connection never, never happens. Um, I I don't you know, I don't have sort of there's a there's not a single answer to it, but it's certainly as a co-op gets bigger, that that becomes um, um, more of an issue. Um, but, you know, the, the one, and I, and I will keep coming back to sport, you know, the Green Bay Packers in America, and it's a slightly different model in America, but effectively they are a member-owned football team. And um, one part of my early life I didn't mention, actually, you know, this, this should have been my, my formative um, answer. I'm sitting here with a, a Green Bay Packers um, um uh, metal socks I have in my office. Uh -huh. So part of my childhood was was growing up in in Wisconsin. In um, I know a lot of Packers fans. So it was funny when you mentioned them. It's like I know exactly where they are too. <laughs> yeah. So so funnily enough, I mean I had a um, uh, part of my primary school years in in Milwaukee in Wisconsin. We could um, I got into baseball. We could always get into the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, to um, watch the baseball, but um, never went to a Packers game. And that was a couple of hours away from, from the main city of Milwaukee. But uh, they, for a small town, Green Bay is not a big town, like about 100,000 people. They have, every game has been sold out, I think, since 1970. So you just can't, you can't get a ticket <laughs> if you're just like mm -hmm. an Aussie turning up to a game. Um, and... Uh, but I love the stories from there. But ever since that, and I and I, but I did get this Green Bay Packers thing as a like eight year old, and I still have it in my office to inspire me about. Actually, that was my first connection with co-ops, was that um, all the kids in my school were all Packers fans. Um, they were such a big presence, and they were off in this little town, and I never understood. And the little town, you know, has a hundred thousand people, and they fill the eighty thousand seat stadium, mm -hmm. have every game since nineteen. You know, seventy. So um, that's just an amazing story. But I love the story that when the when it snows because it's terribly cold and snows a lot, the fans bring their shovels <laughs> and they shovel the snow, and the club doesn't have to hire expensive um, snow plows because the fans get their shovels out and shovel the snow. And I just think, like, what a beautiful story <laughs> in the most corporate. Um, um, sort of private sector sporting comp in the world, probably the American NFL, 31 clubs are owned by billionaires and one club is owned by 300,000. 
Poo-poo I think take club does really well. Game. You know, it's a I very love... successful team. Go the Packers. And they're the most successful team. Yeah. That's right. In America, they love that term, the winningest. They are the winningest team yeah. in NFL history. Yeah. Great. Just a beautiful story. But the NFL said no more co-ops. That will never be allowed to happen again. <laughs> they're oh, not really? Gonna... That's really interesting. So you've taken something that's proven very successful and it's really a threat to the for-profit model, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so that might have answered uh, the question I asked you earlier, which is why aren't there more co-ops? <laughs> One reason. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's right. Well, in the, some cases, um, the powers the, stop it. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the other themes that we've been following on the show is is disaster recovery and response and, and the community yeah. nature of that. Now, you actually did some work for the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals on community resilience in response to disasters, didn't you? We did. Yeah, so really, really fascinating um, uh, opportunity and piece, piece of work last year. Um, you know, we've obviously had disasters for years and years and years and years, but in the last couple of years, particularly, you know, the bushfires um, in New South Wales, um, floods uh, and drought. So it's all very, very real to so many Australians, these disasters. And um, this this work came out of the business council, um, you know, to sort of cut to the chase, not being given a seat at the table when um, and so co-ops not getting a seat at the table when disaster, you know, preparation, recovery, resilience are discussed. So, you know, governments will will bring people in the room. There'll be a whole lot of not for profits or private um, businesses, all of whom have a lot to offer, but the co-ops never never got to see the table. Remember the 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 the, the form of the model that has eighty percent of Australians um, as a member would not be asked for their views or input into um, disaster planning and and um, and recovery and resilience. So we were commissioned to do this piece of work to actually like investigate this, like what what actually then let's 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 get some evidence. What is the role of uh, the cooperatives? in a local regional rural community at a time of uh, when you know when disasters happen so we we looked at four case studies um one was cabago there's cabago co-op um and and i i, I you know constantly saying to people remember cabago not not for the handshake uh issue but remember for cabago for having a wonderful co-op they have a really great co-op called the um the Cabago Cooperative that, um, you know, has all sorts of rural support and services and supplies. Um, Sweeter Banana, a co-op over in WA, which uh, went through in Carnarvon, uh, based around Carnarvon, that had um, experienced cyclones um, a few years ago and destroyed, um, nearly destroyed the banana community, uh, banana um, um, industry uh, didn't. And the co-op was a very big part of, of, of revive, reviving it. Uh, one called Tafco down in Victoria that, particularly suffered from drought and also also um, the the ending of the tobacco industry, you know, which was a disaster for them, but the co-op brought, brought a new future. And then uh, Ori Co-op, which is a, a national um, um, agricultural co-op. So what we discovered is that in the, particularly in the communities um, that uh, faced a, uh, a you know, a disaster that that really impacted one community. The co-op um, played such an important role, and um, you know, just to sort of be, just give sort of a few headlines. One, in a in a in a small community, most people are a member of the co-op, so communication, support um, at the time, before, during, after disaster, co-op was so well placed, probably better placed than any entity to be connecting and and organising people. They often had a you know, central places to meet, um, which which at a time of disaster was really really important. Um, they um, their very nature of sort of pooling resources. That's what they do anyway. At a time of disaster, you know, that's just a lot of economic sharing and and pooling of resources. And even the way some of the co-ops had actually you know pooled risk already and and set up, particularly over in WA, um, sort of an insurance model. Um, um, kind of very industry specific um, meant that um, when the recovery came, they weren't, you weren't looking for some distant big entity to kind of give you support. It was like your own, your own community were the people who were, were helping you um, 
recover. And so the the the, the co-ops um, really really were um, uh, very special in in those disaster um, disaster situations, and um, uh, in a sense just by doing what they always do, which is we own this, it's us, we're in it together. Um, we already have trust. We already have the social connections. You don't want to have to create those things from scratch in the middle of a disaster. So the co-ops actually already had those in, in, in place. And so the evidence that came out of that work was actually, you know, co-ops are really important and you should give them a seat at the table. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Um, I guess... In particularly in the fires and even in the floods as well, the the authorities who we rely on primarily to help us in in these disasters, they're getting so big now that they're just completely overwhelmed. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, how do you see co-ops in the future playing a part in every community being able to respond for themselves? Well, I guess first, you know, let's get more co-ops <laughs> because there's not there's not necessarily. Um, um, uh, co-ops equally spread across the country and and the evidence is that it with the evidence showing that um if you're a member of a co-op in a community at a time of disaster that that's 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 a that's that's something that's gonna be really helpful to you so let's encourage more more co-ops back to the point around getting the word out more more kind of information about co-ops and and, and more support to set them up um and you know just just to you know, you, you, your point is sort of a good one and an obvious one. Um, you know, if there's if there's a thousand people, you know, on their rooftops during a flood, I mean, there's literally not going to be a thousand rescue helicopters <laughs> all able to operate at one time. So that collective self-help is just you know, it's not not about putting the putting the burden back on individuals rather than government but just saying the reality is that collective self-help is just going to be so necessary um, um, at the time so the more again you've built up those links beforehand um, and that can happen just through neighbors being friends and everything as well like absolutely but but where there's a co-op I think you've got um, sort of support structures in place um, earlier so so to me that says get co-ops in the room with emergency services um, planning and disaster resilience planning authorities um, well in well before well before a um, disaster hits. And, well, I think and you could have to do it any day now <laughs> with the amount of disasters we've had, right? Like it <laughs> needs know. to be happening right now or yesterday. I, I was going to use the John F. Kennedy quote of like, you know, um, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, you know, as in you plan when there's not a disaster. But honestly, the reality is the sun isn't shining <laughs> very <Yeah>. much. It's <laughs> be raining every day. Um, but yeah, so to me, it just comes back to, um, you know, governments need to work with all their stakeholders. And of course, they should be working with business, they should be working with, um, you know, sort of the broader not for profit sector. But, you, you know, um, uh, ignore the co op sector at your at your peril, because there's so much to offer um, from the co op sector. So I think it's, it's, yeah, a combination of seat at the table with government and authorities and encouraging more co-ops so that every community has one or more co-ops um, for whatever purpose they're set up for, as well as for being a great resource at time um, times of disaster. Mm. And, and what about things like BCCM or, or the, uh, the Co-ops Federation, which are networks of cooperatives across many different sectors? How do you reckon that could help uh, in a larger sense the, the community respond? Yeah. So even even I mean it's already happening. Um, I was brought into a discussion to talk about this work with a, a network of co-ops up in the Northern Rivers that the the, the kind of existed anyway. But the BCCM um, you know helps helps convene um, getting together of of and, and discussions amongst the different co-ops. And I think you know one of the one of the seven principles of uh, the cooperative cooperatives globally, I'm sure you know, is, um, you know, there's these seven principles that guide um, co-ops everywhere around the world. And I think it's a beautiful thing that written into Australian legislation are the seven, seven cooperative principles. Um, and I mean, just maybe just to run through them quickly, and then I'll come to the one I was going to talk about, Great. voluntary 
membership, democratic, member control, member economic participation, autonomy and independence, education, training and information, and then cooperation among cooperatives is one of the principles. And so if you're in a co-op, you 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 cooperate with other co-ops. It's just amazing how you see that happen. And I've had calls from other co-ops saying, hey, we've got this issue. How, do we help us out? You don't ever stop and think, oh, should I, have I got time? No, I'm a, I'm a co- I'm in a co-op, they're in a co-op, we cooperate. Um, and that's one of the principles written into Australian legislation is cooperation among cooperatives. Yeah, um, I guess the one you beautiful. didn't get to, the seventh one, is also concern for community as well, which is concern for community. quite a that's big right. bit of what we're talking about, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But all underlying all of that is these are businesses. You know, these are running and they're running a sort of a sustainable business. Um, they're not relying on grants. They're actually running collectively running a business with all those principles to me it's like the perfect combination of um i wouldn't say maybe not even combination it's something that almost sits above capitalism and community it's like the great combination of um um sort of enterprise and community collective action um just a beautiful thing and um those seven principles kind of keep them on track wherever you are in the world yeah, nice. That is good. And it's amazing. I mean, is there anything even approaching that in the other business models that are available, the business structures? Um, I don't I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, with private, um, you know, private businesses can do good, do good, of course. And I've got a, I have got a, I have got a, um, a my, my own, uh, my own business and, you know, of course, you want to do good for the world. You want to do good for your employees. That's 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 a very good thing. But ultimately, you know, you you um, um, are working to um, ensure a, a sustainable um, um, business for whoever the owners of that business are. I guess the co-ops, um, you know, you know, the a worker a worker owned um, cooperative, which of which there are some, you know, which is just a um, you know, that's, that's a way in which sort of other sort of, you know, traditional businesses can become, um, um, have a different nature where, where, where the workers um, are, um, um, are the owners. There's things like the B Corp, which I don't know heaps about, but, you know, which is still private businesses that commit to certain, um, to certain uh, kind of, you know, values and principles around working well for the planet and for people but i don't think any you know i think the co-op structure and because it's got its own legislation kind of just 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 beats them all out because it is so um it is so specific around that one person one member one vote you're all in it equally together um so yeah some of the other business models you know try to pick up some elements but yeah i think the co-op co-op is the one um, that we just need lots more of. Mm, and I don't know if you'll know this, but what do you reckon the difference is between a cooperative and a commons? I don't know the answer to that. Ah, well, no <laughs> <Can> worries. You... <laughs> um, um, I like the word commons. It says something about, you know, you know, holding things in, in common, but no. Um, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I guess... Um, yeah, so that we don't leave the listeners hanging there. The commons is basically reliant on three or four ingredients. It's a productive asset of some sort, which could be physical, intellectual, could be housing, could be uh, electricity generation plant, could be Wikipedia, something like that. Um, so it's got that asset which produces something and it's got a community of people who are concerned with that asset and its product. And it's the set of rules which is created by and enforced by that community which govern how the asset is to be shared and managed. Um, so that's it, basically, which is really broad. Um, and it's sort of the way that people come together and self-organise themselves if government disappears or something. So, say there was a disaster and the government never came back, most localities would wind up in some sort of commons. And Yeah. Uh, I guess the unwritten rule is that the asset's not for sale either. So, got it. Got it. Yeah. I'll thank you. That's something. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, what were some of the recommendations in your community resilience report? Yeah. So, I mean, aside from the, you know, the absolute uh, key one of, hey, government, 
give co-ops a seat at the table when you're talking and planning. Um, we we um, uh, there were there were some sort of specific things around around um, um, funding that um, uh, co-ops have found it difficult, even though they're in a good position, channel support through um, through um, uh, through co-ops at the time of disaster. That that government government departments didn't necessarily you know always allow co-ops to be the recipients of funds that then distribute to the community. It's just something to do with government procurement rules. So there's some recommendations around trying to streamline and improve that um, uh, to um, work for federal, state and local government to work with um, co-ops around uh, rolling out maybe some training and education around co-ops, particularly in agricultural areas and the benefits that they can bring. Um, and one, one in particular, and this has happened including in WA with the banana industry, but to encourage member-driven um, resilience funds and insurance pools. So, um, uh, and, you know, the co-ops can do that themselves, but there is some government around those financial sectors. There's government um, um, regulation and help and so forth that's needed, which has happened in WA and I think could probably happen in other states. Um, yeah, there was... Um, there was a, a bunch of a bunch of others, but I think they they largely came back to let's advocate and promote co-ops more. Let's get more training. Let's give them a seat at the table. Um, we've got three pages, I think, of recommendations, so I won't go through them all. But I've probably covered on on some of the key ones. If there's some of our listeners that have really liked what they've heard and they want to get in touch with you or get in touch with you about your company, um, how should they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm very happy for um, my um, to give out my email address, which is uh, so our company Strategic Development Group, based out in Yass, um, in regional Australia, not too far from where you are now. Um, so it's just Michael.Pilbrow. I'm happy to for this to be shared. Michael.Pilbrow at strategicdevelopment.com.au. Um, I'm very happy to um, to talk about that. We, we do work with strategies around co-ops um, and we'll help you help you um, plan and think about about a um, setting up a co-op um, so that's probably the easiest and I, and I don't mind you if people um, ask I'm happy for my phone number to be given out if that's if that's helpful um, pop out to yes great great coffee out here if anyone wants to pop out to yes I'm always happy to talk about co-ops with anyone who who's you know genuinely looking to to um, initiate um, 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 co-ops um, so yeah very happy very happy for the conversation to to continue um, um, can I just quickly give a plug to because I have touched on the yes. Central Coast Mariners Supporter Trust um, Supporter Co-op um, that is coming soon we're looking to have the first genuine Australian in Australia the genuine model of a supporter fan-owned model um, people may know that um, soccer or A-League um, football in Australia is largely privately owned, you know, whether one owner or a small consortium of private owners own the clubs. Um, so we're looking at um, working with the owner of the Mariners about the, the, the fans genuinely owning a particular share. So if you're interested in football or sport and you love the Green Bay Packers story, we're aiming to, to create the, the Green Bay Packers equivalent of Australia, um, the Central Coast Mariners, which is a few hours from Yass and Canberra. Well, Yass and Wisconsin, come on, not too different. <laughs> Both exactly. get bloody cold in winter. <laughs> exactly. We'll get you a exactly. snow shovel. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think if we could do it, back to your questions, you know, questions about, you know, why don't people know more about this? Maybe if we can crack it with a sporting mm. club, I think... Sport is so pervasive in our media. We might we might be able to just get even more people knowing about co-ops. Mm. So um, that's exciting. There'll be some news about that coming up soon. So if you're interested in football, go to the Central Coast Mariners Supporter Trust uh, website. You just search those terms. You'll so find I believe it's uh, ccmsupporterstrust.com. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that was the first thing that... Uh, Arismendi Alieta did uh, with the Mondragon, Mondragon co-ops. I got his name right and stuffed up the easy one. Um, <laughs> but yeah. he, the first thing he did there was to set up a football league because the community yeah. was so down and out. Um, and look what happened there. Now they've got the biggest co-ops in the world. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Well, that's right. And Bar- Barcelona um, mm-hmm. is a co-op. And I think you know, just the sort of final point, if you're thinking about um, co-ops, you know, it, it's not going to be the answer everywhere, but it's it's where there's large numbers of people interested in the viability of the same of one thing. So sporting clubs, there's thousands of fans. You know, so you could see a model of ownership of thousands of fans owning a club. In medical, um, you know, thousands of patients owning um, in, um, in uh, you know. So, so I think sport is just such an obvious place where, where um, uh, co-ops could, um, could, be the, could be a part of the, a really important part of the future. And people stick with their team for a long time. Mm, <laughs> so, so they'll join as a member and be there for the long term. So, um, yeah, just really encourage anyone listening, if you've sparked interest in co-ops, go for it. Fantastic, fantastic. We wanted to thank you so much for joining us this morning, Michael. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show and would love to have you back and maybe talk about things and how they're developing a few months down the road. Would be delighted to be back. Really great to meet uh, Scotty and Zena and uh, all your listeners. Thank you. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.